Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders. I thank you for tuning in again, and I welcome you to go to outcomesrocket.health slash reviews, where you could rate and review today's podcast because he is an outstanding individual doing some amazing things for healthcare. His name is Dr. Rupert Dunbar-Reeves. He's the founder and CEO at Outcomes-Based Healthcare. They are health outcomes data specialists. They build products and services to measure outcomes that matter to people using big data to predict health outcomes. In today's age, it is so important to measure outcomes and Dr. Rupert Dunbar-Rees is on top of his game with him and his team doing this for people that don't know how and institutions that don't know how. He is an MBA and an MD, and he's done a lot of really great things, including being at the Harvard Business School and now back in London, England. So, Rupert, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, So, So, what did I miss in that intro that you want to share with the listeners? No, I think that's a pretty pretty good wrap up of my personal background. I suppose probably the only other bit that I might add is that organizationally, I run outcomes-based healthcare or OBH for short. We're a self-funded startup. We've been going for five years. And as you said, Saul, our mission is, is really around changing the way that healthcare is paid for to better align with best clinical practice and what really matters to patients. So that's the only sort of slight take I might have on the intro. No, it's a really great, great distinction, Rupert. And so what would you say is the reason you got into this whole thing called healthcare? Uh, <laughs> I guess the short answer to that is I actually wasn't smart enough to be a vet, to be a veterinary surgeon. <laughs> You're too funny. <laughs> and that's, that's actually true. I'm not sure how it is in the US, but in the UK, um, if you want to be a vet, you've got to have like full proper A-star grades right across the board at, at on leaving school. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get those grades. Uh, I started doing some veterinary practice. And I actually really liked, actually really liked the sort of the healthcare bits of dealing with animals and so on. But the academic qualifications were a bit of a push. And then I, I guess it sort of got me into thinking, well, what would it be like treating humans? And so, so <laughs> what, what got me into it in the first place. And then I was fortunate enough to find my way to medical school. Oh, that is too funny. So it really is more difficult to be a vet than a physician. <laughs> apparently so. In the, UK, <laughs> in the UK, at least. Yeah, apparently so. There are more animals. Um, different types of animals can have many, many different things wrong with them, I guess. So uh, there's got to be some rationale there. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in there. Well, <laughs> animals, we have our cat at home. And I'll tell you what, our cat, his name is Chibi. He is a person in this family. So we, we, don't, we don't make a distinction. <laughs> no, this is really awesome, Rupert. So you're you're here now and now you've built a company. Are you still practicing? So not these days. I stopped practicing uh, probably about in the end, about six, seven years ago, something like that. But I used to be a primary care physician. Very cool. Very cool. So you guys were one of eight for uh, 2016 in the NHS Innovation Accelerator Program. You guys don't get to a spot like that without really having topics that matter and, and tackling t- topics that matter. So on that front, what would you say every healthcare leader needs to be thinking about today? 
So apart from the sort of the more obvious, which is, you know, really measuring, uh, really providing transparency around outcomes and, and really, uh, and by that, I mean, not confusing outcomes with process metrics or outputs and really measuring, really focusing on what really matters to patients and families. That's a sort of more obvious topic, I suppose, that we feel, you know, should be, or that I feel should be on every medical leader's agenda. But I suppose as an organization, how are we approaching it? Um, we, as I, as I sort of intimated in the intro, we, we are really working on a bunch of currencies which support true pay for prevention. And really that's about measuring outcomes and organizing, helping that sort of move towards organizing care around people, families, people with similar needs, rather than just organizing care around organizations or departments. And to really support the change towards um, payment for outcomes rather than just whether you did something or not. And so did it work? Did it make a meaningful difference to people's lives? And I guess at the moment, you know, a lot of health systems around the world, if you succeed in preventing an adverse complication, let's say, from happening, then too often that leads to actually a, a reduction in the amount of uh, money that you're going to get paid as a, as a provider. And that can't be right. So if we succeed in reducing heart attacks and strokes and amputations and kidney failures and so on, then how can it be right that um, providers lose income? And so all of our effort um, as an organization is focused on really um, payment for prevention, or at least a system where payment prevention for prevention gets gets equal billing with, with treatment of ill health. I think it's a highly worthwhile effort and, and one that, that poses a challenge, you know, I, I, here in the U.S. definitely we're trying and, you know, providers are trying to be more value-based in what they do. The Affordable Care Act was a big push toward that as well. In the right. U.K., what would you say some of the differences in getting something like this done? Do you feel like it's a little more progressive over there and open to that kind of uh, opportunity? Well, I guess in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. The strengths, I suppose, we have as a system is that we've got a single patient identifier, so we right. have a single uh, NHS number. So if I'm trying to measure real outcomes that happen anywhere in the system, I don't, even if I move area or I happen to be on holiday on business um, in a completely different part of the country, because of the way the data system is set up, then that should that basically all, all should flow to a single single um, central number. So your medical record follows you as you both throughout life and also geographically. So so that puts us in a great position for measuring outcomes sort of long. I guess where we, <laughs> where we're weak or where we have more challenges is probably a better way of putting it. Is actually really using that data and making the best use of it. We have incredibly tough information and data governance regulations here, which is right. Sometimes I feel that some of those discussions around data governance, information governance are sort of happening in a vacuum whereby, you know, it's actually working against people's um, best interests. And, and too often it's too slow to get to actually use that linked data set to get uh, novel insights around uh, avoidable outcomes or preventable outcomes and, and so on. So I sometimes feel that the US is perhaps in some ways less well set up for linking data, really getting the best out of linked data sets across different care settings, but actually manages to do much better uh, despite not having a single patient identifier. While the UK is very well set up for it, but somehow just can't seem to can't seem to exploit the benefits of that in quite as easily. So it's, I guess it sort of swings and roundabouts in some sort of way. Yeah, no, that's a really great observation, Rupert. And, and I, I totally agree. And just thinking about the opportunities that present itself with having that unique patient identifier and then just being able to leverage them, you know, it just, and that's where you guys come in. Can you give the listeners an example of how you and your team have, have created results by doing what you're doing? Sure. We start everything by really coming at everything from the patient's perspective and really asking people what matters most to them. 
that's our starting point for everything. So that's our, our approach is firmly uh, sort of starting with patients. And I know that sort of sounds trite or, or obvious, but actually when we look a little bit more deeply under that rock and really get under the skin of what we actually mean by you know, coming at everything from the patient's perspective. What that means in our context is really going around the country and talking to different groups of the population around what really matters to them. And just to give you a, a sort of a, an example of, of some of that. So we, we started speaking to older people with frailty or sort of seniors with multiple medical conditions or sometimes no medical condition at all, but in this sort of frailty syndrome, with uh, which is sort of well recognized in the literature. And oftentimes they would say to us, these people would say to us, you know, I get that I have multiple medical conditions and that they all need to be dealt with by different specialists and so on. But too often people in with multiple things wrong with them or multiple medical problems or concerns are made to fit around the system. And so, so they, they say, well, you know, I get that I've got to go to the hospital for, to, to, to see different specialists for different conditions, but does it all have to be on different days? And yeah. You know, such a performance getting to the, the hospital or, or the, wherever the care is, is, is needing to be provided. And, you know, they were, when we were speaking to these people, they were saying, we're, you know, we're spending most of our lives waiting for patient transport or, or toing and froing or sitting in a, in, a, in a waiting room, waiting to see a different specialist. And really that sort of got us thinking about some outcomes which, which might, might be meaningful. And we would, we, around the country, we tested some of those out. And really what that sort of landed on was a metric around the number of days which basically spent toing and froing between the hospital and home. And so we worked on a metric which was around the number of days disrupted by care or the amount of time spent at home. And uh, starting off initially applying those metrics to older people with frailty and, and starting to measure that and, and supporting health systems who wanted to actually use that as a metric. And there's a very good example in North London that was written up on the New England General Medicine Health Catalyst site where Camden, which is a borough in, in North London, started tracking this metric around the, the amount of time spent at home for, for older people and started to look at things like care coordination, seeing if actually we could coordinate outpatient appointments so that, um, or ambulatory care appointments so that multiple specialists were able to sort of be on hand on the same day for the, the specific patients, and also very proactive case management and so on. And in this sort of very vulnerable cohort, they found that not only they were able to sort of tweak their efforts and, and their interventions to reduce the number of days which were spent you know, on the journey back and forth from hospital, and they started to notice that in addition to increasing the number Number of days which people were able to get on with their lives, see their grandchildren, go you know go for a walk in the park and so on, go shopping or whatever it was they wanted to do in their lives. In addition to sort of meeting meaning improvements in, in you know sort of meaningful function from the patient's perspective, they also noticed that these groups started to reduce their demand, if you like, on on the acute healthcare system. So they had lower attendances at the ED department. They had lower numbers of admissions to hospital. They spent less time when they did end up needing to be admitted as an inpatient and so on. So all of these sort of metrics that we traditionally rely on, like emergency admissions and so on, were improved by just simply meeting them, you know, coming at it from the other the other direction, coming at it from the patient's perspective. Because otherwise, if we focus on just reducing emergency admissions or what have you, then the problem just oftentimes just pops up somewhere else in, in the system. And so we've taken that and now standardized that as a metric and extended it to other population groups. So looking at the number of days spent days disrupted by care in the last few weeks of life, for example, and developing more sort of meaningful metrics. Rupert, this is a really great insight and also a way to look at it, as it said often, is is the symptom is not always the problem. So the ED visits, the overwhelming ED visits is a symptom. And you guys sort of tackled it from this really awesome perspective of 
you got to make sure you meet them where they are. And, and, and you really impacted this outcome of reduced ED visits, but also increased quality of life. Absolutely. Ah, that's such a, such a really great way to think about it. And I think more of the problems that we have in, in health have to be thought about this way. So I'm glad that you and your team are doing this. I think it's just such a fascinating thing that you guys are doing right now. Thank you. What would you say one of the biggest setbacks you had, Rupert, and what you learned from it? The failure question. I, I really, I really uh, struggle with this one. I don't like this one. I'm going to preface, so I do have a big failure uh, story to recount, but I'm going to preface it though. Um, and I think my preface would be that I genuinely feel that I almost feel we, me personally and, and us as an organization continually fail. We fail on a daily basis. And the reason why we do that is because we try things to see if it works. And it's only through that mechanism that we can actually learn things. And my general feeling is that it's only a failure if we haven't learned something valuable out of, of the mm-hmm. failure. And so I, I, I so have this sort of personal mindset anyway, which is around changing it from sort of failure to just haven't succeeded yet, that thing. <laughs> we haven't tweaked it enough to the point where it actually it actually works. So <laughs> with that sort of in mind, it then really, it's hard to, to, to really think about times in life when it's really challenging, because actually some of those really challenging times actually turned out to be some of the best things I ever did. But I suppose on the biggest moment of failure in my life, I suppose, or at least I felt so at the time, and that's the important thing, was when I stepped away, we spoke at the front end of this interview, when I stepped away from being a frontline doctor, and I first did that. I was a partner in general practice. I had been through my hospital training. I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. So a lot of my early early training was around surgery. I then didn't really progress well with that. I didn't, it wouldn't quite engage with it that well. And then decided I wanted to be a physician, what we call a physician, a general physician in this country. But uh, I think in the US, it's uh, sort of an internist. I repeatedly sat, you know, these ridiculously hard exams and repeatedly failed them. And they were kind of designed to be failed. And, and you... Yeah. <laughs> You know, you sort of, that was the point and, and you had to take them like four or five times um, and eventually you would get it on the fifth go and I was there on my fifth go and still not passing. And so I, I actually, I ended up in general practice and I was a partner in general practice in Scotland actually for five years. And um, I just, I reached this point in my career when I, I really found myself quite unhappy with where I was in my career on the face of it, I should have been really happy. I, I, you know, I'd found a lovely practice with with great patients and great sort of life satisfaction by lots of metrics. But I was really I had some real misgivings about whether we were doing the right things for patients, whether how that made me feel personally, and things like that. And I stepped away from being frontline GP. I, I, I gave up my partnership. I really felt that I had failed at being a doctor. Uh, at that point. And I sort of asked, started asking myself, why? Was it because this was not what I was meant to be doing? Or had I chosen the wrong career? You know, back at um, high school, I, I had the aptitude test and they said, oh, you should do something outdoors. You should be a surveyor or <laughs> oil sector or something like that. <laughs> Damn, should I have really listened to that? Should I have gone and been, um, you know, worked on an oil rig or something? I don't yeah. know. Um, and then I would I wouldn't have arrived at this sort of failing point. And I really didn't know what I was going to do next. And I thought, wow. you know, do I leave medicine full stop? Or mm-hmm. And I guess my, my learning about that, as you can tell from what's happened since then, is I just, it wasn't, I thought at the time that actually I was going to need to throw away everything I had done and set off being an accountant or something or doing something completely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oil rig, accounting, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the spectrum was pretty yeah. wide. <laughs> yeah. um, what else can I train it? Um, and it turned out that I did 
kind of slightly do that. Um, I, I went and got a, a very financial MBA. I tried to learn how money moves around the healthcare systems and why why it was so dysfunctional. What you know, this payment systems in healthcare. And then I thought, well, if I'm not part of the problem, then if I'm not part of the solution, then I'm part of the problem. And so, and so that sort of set me off on the next phase of my mission. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if this sort of combination of healthcare and, and, and finance, um, I wouldn't have been able to, to do what, what I do now if I hadn't had that fantastic grounding in clinical medicine first. Because um, I, I use that every single day. At the time, I thought I'd failed. But to be honest, I couldn't do what I do now if I had not been through that process. Wow. What a wonderful story. And I appreciate you sharing it, Rupert. And to the listeners, it's not what's happening in front of you now, but it's the meaning that you give to it and how you're going to piece it all together. Rupert was just sort of not meant to be at the bedside. He was always somebody that taking these tests, forget about it. It's all about changing what is happening out there, not the status quo, but making it better. And that's why at this point, when you see the things that he's doing, he's just shining. And so don't be afraid of failing. It's just not there yet. Just keep going. And I think it's so so inspiring, Rupert, what you've done. And, and I congratulate you for doing the wave finding that you have. Well, I've been around the houses, but I've, I feel like I'm, I'm on my next career now. So, <laughs> <laughs> And a good one that is. And you guys are doing some awesome stuff. So tell me a little bit of a project that you're focused on today. So I guess the main projects that we're, we're focused on is all around, I guess, what in the US you might call accountable care. We also were starting to call some of our sort of integration and uh, work here accountable care as well. But I feel that sometimes the, the, the language and the jargon really, really gets in the way of what we're all trying to achieve. And to me, it doesn't matter whether we call it accountable care, integrative care, all sorts of value-based payments. It really doesn't matter. We're, what we're trying to do is, as health systems, is really deliver the best possible outcomes for the lowest cost either to, to the insured person or the taxpayer. And I know that's what we've sort of all been doing ever since our health systems um, first started. But I really feel that there's a sea change in how we are measuring success as health systems and what we are expecting health systems to do. So a lot of our work is now around supporting the organization of care around those populations that I spoke about um, earlier. So it's this really exciting move towards population health and accountable care, measuring what really matters and reimbursing those people who really succeeded in improving outcomes. Our role within that is outcome measurement. So we have a software platform that we've built over the last uh, five years, which measures those outcomes for specific population groups within an either, either an insured area or an area of coverage. Um, it supports health systems to be able to visualize those outcomes in, in near real time. And if, if they want to, if they want to reimburse against those outcomes, then then you can set it up in that way as well. So that's that's our, our main does project. Does it hook up to the EMR? It depends on the population, but yeah. So so it either hooks up to the EMR, uh, in particular um, in relation to care that's provided by primary care physicians, but also through other administrative data sets and other, other data sets that we have here, which, which flow centrally out of acute care settings. So we, we typically join data sets uh, across multiple different care settings so that we can really get a longitudinal insight across the full care pathway. So the answer is that the, the data sets vary according to what the population is and what the outcome is that we wanted to track. Oh, very cool. Listeners, go to outcomesbasedhealthcare.com. If you go under solutions, you'll you'll see the the software that Rupert's talking about, it's pretty cool. Why grow something in your own institution when you could hire people that are doing this? And so 
outcomes-based healthcare. Uh, Rupert and his team over there have some really cool things that I think you should consider. So check that out. Rupert, time flies when you have fun, my friend. We're here to the end, the lightning round where you and I put together a course on what it takes to be successful in medicine, the 101 of Dr. Rupert. And so <laughs> I've got four questions followed by a book and a podcast that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Right. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? So I'm going to try and keep this sharp. I think the best way is to, you know, a lot of people think that the uh, best way to, to improve patient outcomes is actually optimally manage the patient that's in front of you. But I really feel that the best way to improve healthcare outcomes is actually really think about those patients who haven't arrived in front of you yet. And I feel that sort of the era of heroic medicine is where we sort of save patients who are already poorly is, is, is rapidly uh, sort of crumbling away. So uh, it's really thinking about how we stop people who are currently healthy from ever developing the condition that we, we might need to treat. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? From a provider's perspective, the biggest pitfall would be thinking you're doing well when you only counting the people that you know about or the people that are in front of you and treating you. Actually, that can lull you into a false sense of security around how well you're doing on outcomes if you're only treating half of the population with a condition. It's really, you know, if half the people are missing the treatment, then you're not doing so well. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? So thinking about this again from a provider's perspective, I think the more you focus on outcomes, the more stable, more stability there is over time. If we think about the optimal care processes, they're designed to change on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis, second-by-second. You know, we're always improving care processes. But outcomes, people want out of their, their lives, out of their health and so on, is often much more stable over time. So that enables you to stay relevant if you focus on outcomes. What's one area of focus that should drive everything in your organization? So I feel, certainly in our organization, and I feel this is a good tip for anyone interested in outcomes, is, is attention to detail. At OBH, we're, we're sort of fanatical. We're obsessed about detail because if someone presents some outcome statistics and you don't know where the data set is, you don't know what the numerator is, you don't know what the denominator is. It's largely meaningless. So really digging into the detail. If you're an outcome-focused organization, that's where you, you, know, you, you should be putting a lot of attention on the detail. And what book... And what podcast would you recommend to the listeners? I guess I'm, there's two books, actually, if I'm allowed two books. That's so, fine. <laughs> so <laughs> Being Mortal by Atul Gwande. And it really, the reason for that is because it's really about reminding us there's more to end of life than dying. And the second one that's more relevant to running a startup and, and, and doing hard things is, the hard, is a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And it really sort of gets under the skin of if you're doing meaningful and worthwhile things, sometimes it's really hard and you just have to stick at it. In terms of podcasts, I love uh, Tim Ferriss, actually. Again, he's, he's sort of obsessed about the details and things. And I think that sort of plays to a lot of what we love around here. Love it. Rupert, before we conclude, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could get a hold of you or follow you. Cool. Yeah. So I guess the closing thought would be the most studied outcome that we, we generally focus on as health systems is it's immortality and lifespan, really. Those are probably the, the, the two aspects of the outcomes the most most studied as an outcome. But I think our, our plea would be that we focus more on health span and the number of healthy years, not just whether you live longer. And so I think there's going to be an increasing focus on health span over the coming years and, and really getting under the skin of what proportion of our lives are healthy years. And then finally, just where to, to get hold of us, the website you mentioned, www.outcomesbasedhealthcare.com, outcomes with an S. 
or me personally, um, RupsDR, R-U-P-S-D-R on Twitter. Fantastic. Rupert, really appreciate the time that you dedicated to us today. I think the listeners will definitely take a big pearl out of the wisdom and, and stories that you shared. And so I just want to take the time to say thank you and uh, looking forward to staying in touch with what you guys are up to. Thank you. Thanks, all. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.